You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm your host Greg Eel, the Culture Change Agent. On this show, we interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate, empower, and inspire our current and future generation of leaders. It's Thursday morning. Some of y'all listening to this thing at 5.30 a.m. Some of y'all are listening to this thing two weeks after I released it. Some of y'all listen to this thing years after I released it. I don't know when you're listening to it, but you're here now, and I appreciate y'all. I got a couple words I want to say before we get into this episode. And the energy I want to keep on this episode, which I'm, I'm telling you, this is one of the longest episodes of the season. It's like an hour 45, but it is refreshing. It's needed. And it's full of culture. This episode is special. I'm telling you, it's special. So, so bear with us. Also, too, you can hit the restart button anytime. Now, I'm not talking about a podcast. I ain't talking about anything abnormal. I'm talking about life. I'm talking about business. I'm talking about whatever goal you had. At the beginning of the year, whatever goal you have for your life originally when, when, it, when it was planned out when you was a kid or your kid right now, you can hit restart. That doesn't mean that your kid going to go somewhere. That doesn't mean that like, <laughs> that doesn't mean that, that, that stuff is going to revert back to anything else. Like, nah, the stuff that you got yourself into, it, it's, it's going to stay there. It's good. It's, it's there to go. I'm, I'm, I apologize. The credit card that you in right now, you can, it's still going to be there after you hit restart of your mind. So I can't even finesse and act like that's going to change. But what can change is your habits. What can change is your mindset. What can change is your circle. What can change is that, 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 that thing in the back of your head that's telling you right now that you should quit. You don't deserve it. You're not worth it. And I don't know what, why that's on my heart. And some of y'all, y'all can just go ahead and do the little 15 second boy or double speed and skip through this part. But I, I just feel like somebody out here needs that message that you can restart. Give yourself, I, I, I don't know if I can give you permission, but I give you permission to restart. Go ahead. After this podcast, so shoot, if you need to restart that bad, after hearing this, don't even listen to the rest of the podcast. I mean, just to be honest, if, if, if it's at the point right now where you just just going through the motions, you just consuming content on a daily basis, consuming, 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 and not giving nothing out because you're just trying to get away, you need to turn up. You need to get back into it. And I've been there. That's why I'm talking about it. That's why I, I, I've been there. I've been there for months, almost years at, at, at points, living a lie, 
doing the wrong mm-hmm. thing, going through the motions. But it's okay. You can restart, man. We need you to restart. We need to be having deeper, more honest lives. Not conversations, because this podcast is about deep, honest conversations and growing that. And that's great. But we need to have deep and honest lives. Like, even in my own personal life, this, this conversation I'm not having, that I need to have. But the time has come. And I can hope y'all can hear, tell by the energy, man. The time has come. Like, we back. Like, the same energy that y'all had for some of our most loyal listeners. I'm talking about November 2015 when y'all heard that boy voice. And we got on the mic for episode one where I was interviewing the people I knew from a and that were doing good stuff. We got it back, man. We hit the restart button. It took some time. And there's still things when you hit the restart start button that you have to do. But my mindset is a little different. And it's okay. So I don't know who I'm talking to out there. If you need to hit that restart button, go ahead and do it. But until then, let's jump into this podcast. Let's raise it up, turn it up. Because you like coming this thing, talking a mile a minute and all excited. And I'm still excited. But remember, 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 all this knowledge, all this stuff that we spitting on this podcast that you hear online, that you see, that you double tap, that don't mean ish. If you're not happy, if you're not fulfilled, if you're not going towards your dreams, and your goals, it don't mean nothing. All right. So make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure you lock in, you press that restart button. And remember, you a freaking culture change agent. Bar none. All right? Let's get into the show. And of course, I got a show for you today. This season, we have been on fire. Season five has been phenomenal. Um, thank y'all for your feedback thus far. I'm really encouraged and inspired by y'all, most importantly. But today, I got a brother online, which I'm I'm so encouraged that he's on the, what he's been able to do. But his vision for the future and it's, it's intensity as far as cultivating black genius within everybody and the awareness of black genius within everybody. And I think his story, where he's came from, and his journey is going to be empowering and impacting for everybody. So I'm going to read a snippet, a snippet of his bio, and then we're just going to jump right into his story and his journey, man. So he's the founder and the executive director of Village of Wisdom, which is a nonprofit that enhances black boys' academic achievement by promoting a strong belief in intellectual ability and a resilient racial identity. Becoming the highest performing science teacher in his district at the age of 24, he yearned for avenues to expand his impact on boys and men of color. A year later, he decided to pursue his PhD in education at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. While at UNC, he attracted the attention of Frontline Solutions, which is one of the fastest growing consulting firms of color in the United States, and was commissioned to design several highly engaging and effective learning environments for both school age and professional audiences. He has been selected to present at several national and regional conferences on the topics of parent intervention programs and self-regulated learning. As well, he's a former Education Pioneers Fellow and a recipient of the UNC Doctoral Merit Fellowship. Also, too, he is officially, officially, officially a doctor. He just received a doctorate at UNC, and um, I'm proud to have him on the show. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. William Jackson to the Minority Trouble as a podcast, man. Welcome to the show. What's up, Greg? Thanks so much for having me, man. I'm excited to be to to be here talking to you today. Man, 
and I'm excited as well, man. I'm ready to just jump right into it, man. I know we got a lot of things to discuss and discover, specifically on your work, man, because I've interviewed a lot of people that that are in the nonprofit space, that are in the space of volunteering and helping our our black young men and just helping America in general better deal with some of the the issues of our our past. However, one one key thing is 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 different about your your perspective is of outside of your your willingness and your heart to serve and give. You come at it from also to a data sensitive place as well. And I think sometimes we get in the nonprofit, our heart is really heavy and our heart is big to help and serve. But sometimes we, we miss some of the things in the data, some things that research suggests. And I think you coupling your research and your data intensive background, as well as your heart and your research and love for black history and having those join is what makes your nonprofit and the work you do in general so unique and so profound. So before we get off from the show, because I'm getting excited, I want you to share with our audience, man, a quote or a mantra that you're living by that's speaking to you right now and how you apply that in your everyday life. Yeah, so the, the quote that sticks out to me, so uh, usually nightly uh, when I'm putting my daughter down, we watch a, a video and, and a lot of times it's Maya Angelou. Um, and in one of the videos, she's, she quotes uh, this Greek philosopher called Terence, And his quote is, I am a human being. Nothing human can be alien to me. And, you know, Maya Angelou goes on to talk about this, but basically she talks about the two extremes. Like one, if you see something evil, you trying to distance yourself and say, oh, well, that person committed murder or that person committing this crime or this heinous act. I can't see how a human could do that actually allows for the space for you to potentially do that in the future, right? Because if you can't see the evil in you, then you can't kind of control or root that evil out. You can't work on that. You know what I mean? Um, And on the flip side, uh, when you look at somebody like a Martin Luther King or a Malcolm X or Barack Obama or, or whoever, like you really look up to and you say like, I don't understand how they could do that. Then you also kind of exclude yourself from that greatness, right? Because, you got to kind of find in yourself what other humans are able to do allows you to kind of tap in to, to the best of us. And, and also, I think, be careful around how you don't become the worst of us. Mm, I, I like that. I like that. And how would you say that that that's that that quote or that mantra that, that she, she she shared, how you kind of apply that in your journey in your everyday life? Yeah, I mean, it's, so the, the way that I apply it is that. <laughs> you know, I try to be critical of myself, right? Like, you know, we're going to talk more about the work that we do, but we work around this issue and this idea of racism and and how oppression plays out. And a lot of times what happens is, is folks like to distance themselves. They like to say, well, I'm not racist or I couldn't have that type of thought or I don't participate in those things. I'm not sexist. I don't, you know, I don't do misogynistic things. And and actually, that's the problem, right? Like the second that you say that you don't do something, then that means that you don't actually allow yourself to be caught. And so I use that in my thinking uh, to make sure that I'm keeping myself in check, right? Like that I'm doing this self-reflection that I need to do to make sure that I'm being successful um, at being the best person I'm going to be or I can be. Mm-hmm. So on the opposite, and, and that's great, but on the opposite perspective, on on not perspective on the end of the spectrum, as far as your positive, your, your genius traits, how do you tap into 
utilizing and um, pushing forward your strengths as well. Because I know some of us, it may be easy for us to be critical, look at our weaknesses, look at things we got to better on, et cetera, and keep us yeah. grounded. But I yeah. think something important you said is not to myth. I don't think she said mythalize, but like uh, we see these yeah. great humans that did great work and then we put them on such a pedestal and then it's like we yeah. spend this constant thing. So how do you affirm yourself as well? Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of my affirmation comes from looking at other people, right? So like when I look at those people, I don't necessarily think like that's impossible. Like I'm like, man, I'm trying to study what they did. How did they get there? You know? What made Martin Luther King so special? I mean, this is a guy that was reading books over and over and over again. Like he was a student. He was a studier. He didn't just kind of wake up one day and have an I dream. I have a dream speech. Right. Like he's been writing speeches, you know, what I mean? mm-hmm. like so it's one of those things where I, I kind of find inspiration from looking at other people who do really dope stuff like one of the like my current day heroes is uh, these two women that run this organization called Girl Trek. Um, and I know them and I just look at what they do on social media and like how they're having these conversations. And every time they release something, like I'm looking at it, I'm analyzing it. I'm trying to figure out, man, how could I do something like this? Right. So like I look to those folks who I think are doing these really amazing things. Um, and I study that and, and try to figure out what I can gain from it. What can I learn from it so that I can, and, and that uplifts me. Right. Because if I if I feel like I can learn it, then I know that I can do it, you know, and that that's what gives me confidence is like knowledge. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and knowledge from the folks that I feel like are really doing their best to push our culture forward. Mm, I love that. I love that. And, and and when you say that and when you spoke of that quote, it just the, the word awareness came to my mind and just really just bold letter, bold letter print awareness and. I think awareness is key because without awareness, you can, without awareness, you just live in life. Like you're just going through the motions. You're taking what it is. You're not really living with force or being aggressive. But when you're aware and, and, and thinking intelligently about your weaknesses, like you said, you can find out how you can fill those gaps. That's the re- like, we don't, we don't think about weaknesses just to say, okay, we got a weakness. No, the weaknesses, you can find out how you can fill those gaps or how you can place people while you have executive board of directors, while you have other people to help out in certain things of what you're doing now. Like that, that's the reason as well as your strength. So that can allow you to say, okay, where, where else can I help and how can I keep growing them? Because, you know, we're, we're, as we get older too, your strengths and the things that you're good at, if you're not continually immersed in them, like Martin Luther King, continue to read. Like, and we'll talk about what you're doing as well as continue to be a work, immersed in the work that you're doing with, with black men of color. Uh, then you can kind of lose that edge. You can kind of lose that spark. But before we even jump into everything that you're doing and your, your past and your background, I just want to stay current right now. Uh, you just had a, a daughter, man. And I know we, we, we're not, we haven't gotten into Village of Wisdom and everything else yet, man. But how is, has your perspective on, on life? And I know it's a broad question, but I always try to ask the people that come online to have children, man, especially younger in early thirties, man. How, how has your perspective changed in kind of the work that you do and you as a person? I know that's a big question. Yeah, man, I think, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that came to mind um, to directly answer your question, and I got a little bit of a tangent, so I'm going <laughs> to tell you my tangent ahead of time. Um, but so I was at a school board meeting um, and I was talking about they were about to hire a new superintendent and me and some of my colleagues and the folks that I work with, we were trying to impact the decision that they were making. 
Yeah, when you make a statement at a school board meeting, they want you to tell you where they want you to say where you live. Um, and what that put me in the mind of was telling them what school my daughter would go to. Because uh, I live on the east side of Durham, there's a school real close by called Y.E. Smith. Um, and you know, I started to say the statement that I think a lot of people say, which was, you know, my daughter would be good, but I'm worried about the kids around her. <laughs> mm. And in that moment, I caught myself. I said, "Wait a minute! Like, I actually can't be good if my neighbor isn't good, mm. right? Like, my my soul shouldn't be right. Like, I shouldn't feel good about the fact that oh, like my kid will be good, even if the the people that live right beside her are going to be good, right? Like, if she's growing up with the little girl across the street or the little boy across the street, and he's not good." then that means she can't be good, right? Because her friend is going to be hurting, right? Mm -hmm. Or even worse, because that person isn't good, then that brings pain into her life. And so that was one of the, that was like a really kind of like awakening for me. Like that was another time of like catching myself, like, wait a minute, like we always do this thing of like distancing ourselves, right? Like that's a way of classism, right? Like my kids will be good. No, they shouldn't be good, right? Because if you're not willing to put your kid in the same school as your neighbor's kid, then really what are you doing? Like what, how are your actions being representative of what you believe about the world? And that's a really tough thing. And, And I know like for a lot of parents, like we want the best for our kids, and I think we have to start we have to start really examining what that means, right? Because how can we have the best for our kids if all kids can't get the best? Wow. Um, and, and what kind of world does that what that does that set us up for? Um, and kind of related to that, I remember early on when I was back when I was working at Frontline in a consultant firm, there was a woman that worked there with me, and she was like, you know, let me know when you start actually working with girls. And because we're a family-centered organization, actually, we made the switch uh, probably three years ago now to to be in an organization that that serves families uh, of black children of all genders, right? So, like anybody, um, any you know, whatever kind of kid you got, <laughs> we want to work with you because it, we think it's really hard to have a family-based organization and say like, oh, well, we're only going to work with families who have boys because that just gets complicated as soon as somebody has a boy and a girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And you said something that was like mind blowing to me that I've never really thought about in that way, in the sense of uh, how can I fundamentally be good? Because we we like people think about it, but we think about it in like high level terms. Like, how can I be good when I see my brother starve? When I see my brother homeless? And we say about it, but let's when you really think about it, and it really brought to my attention, especially with the, when you're dealing with children, they really can, maybe can't handle emotion, can't handle certain things. And mm-hmm. she goes across the street to a friend that is struggling. Their parents are in financial straits. They're doing this, and of course, she's going to be impacted by the stuff they say because you can't control her. You can't control her environments, her interactions, what what goes to her head. And that that has a direct impact on her life. And then I thought about it, too. When you think about that, that certain parents that say, OK, I want the best for my child and not to discredit people from giving their child great clothing and anything like that. But just stay yeah. with me, audience. So say <laughs> they want the best for my child. They Their students come and they got Jordans every day. They got the freshest gear and they're great in school. They're doing all this for their child. Right. But then mm-hmm. the other children don't have that. And then sometimes they may create bullying or may create envy and all these emotions that as adults 
some of them, some of us can handle whatnot, but as children, a lot of strife can come from that. Like, there's a, there's, and there's some, and that's a huge conversation. But now I think about it, it's like there's certain things that we want so bad for our children. We think about what about the, what, what does that classroom need? Like sometimes mm-hmm. as, as and maybe, and I'm not speaking for parents, but even myself as a teacher, I'm like, man, back in the day, what if I've never heard a parent, but like, and, and this is isolated. Some parents may do this, but saying, okay, what does the classroom need? Okay. My child is doing this. Or having that frame of thinking, like how did that affect my classroom? And even as us as adults, when we make decisions on what we buy, where we eat, where we purchase, what we do, really consciously thinking, okay, who else is being affected by this? Um, and then making actions accordingly, man. Wow, that's that's a big challenge for myself, man. So I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a challenge for me, man. It's hard, it's hard <laughs> every day. <laughs> but um. But I guess to to have some linear format because uh, I I know we could have a great dialogue and discussion on day that some I know we got some linear folk to be like okay so where to get started who is this guy all this other stuff so mm-hmm. before um, we get into kind of what you do currently man tell our audience where you're from and your background and 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 who you were prior to high school man just the whole coming coming to how you made yourself <laughs> yeah um. So I'm originally from, uh, I was born in Piedmont Hospital <laughs> in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I grew up in a, in a city outside of Atlanta called Riverdale. Um, I heard Waka Flocka yeah, yeah. Riverdale. I, I heard yeah, that yeah, 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 there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of folks. So, oh, National Highway. So Ludacris raps, are called, uh, raps about Old National and it's like album word of mouth. Um, and it's, it's a part of town that a lot of black folks are from. Um, it's Riverdale is probably about 20, 15 minutes away from the city. Um, so it's, it's really close to Atlanta. Um, and then by the time, so Waka Flocka and Two Chains are from this area and they went to like the high school there. And when it was getting close to me, time for me to go to middle school, you know, my parents' decision was to move me to Fayette County, um, which was about, so we went from 15 minutes away from the city to about 20, 30 minutes away from the city. Um, and basically it was for to kind of get me to better schools. Like you see how this conversation is kind of circuitous yeah. anyway. Um, so, uh, parents put me in this school and, and that's kind of, you know, that's, that's why I grew up and stuff. Um, and so one of the things I think about a lot that I think has shaped me and a lot of decisions that I make, I tell people a lot of times, um, uh, that I think my mom brainwashed me. Uh, and what oh, wow. I mean by that is that when I was growing up, I didn't really realize that there were white scientists. Like the only scientists I ever heard of were Charles Drew and George Washington <laughs> wow. and Mae Jemison. Like that's, that's, you know, that was a scientist to me. Right. Like, and so I, you know, it's not that I was super aware of that at like eight, but like when I reflect back on it, there was never any doubt in my mind that I could be a scientist. Like I re- actually remember, and this was like a bad social choice at the time. <laughs> but I remember being in second and third grade needed glasses. And when my mom asked me what kind of glasses I wanted, I said, I wanted gray glasses, like the gray chunky boy, so I could look like a scientist. <laughs> wow. Again, you were those not, kids. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> not a good social decision, you know, again. But that's, you know, that's who I was, right? But it, and it's also interesting because sometimes, like I think in our culture, Sometimes in our society, the messages that we get is that black folks aren't that right. But see, me trying to be a scientist was actually me not not trying to be black. I was trying to be black because I thought scientists were black. You get what I'm saying? Wow. 
And so that's kind of like the complicated like narratives that are kind of created for our kids. And I'm, I'm, you know, super grateful to my mom for doing that for me because I never questioned there was never any like distinction or pull for me between my blackness and my academic identity. Like it wasn't like, oh, you know, you're trying to be smart. So you're not trying to be black. And the way that Atlanta is set up, there's just so much diversity among black folks. And for people who've been to like a HBCU and stuff like that, you kind of know what I mean, where there's just like a whole bunch of different black folks (laughs) in that place. Um, And so that's kind of like what it's like to grow up in Atlanta. Like there were so many like male role models that I could look to and examples of like black folks who were were making it and and women who are making it as well. and so that I, I I always feel like that was a really big part of my upbringing. And even like when I was in the AP and gifted classes, like I know a lot of my friends who grew up in other cities and other places, like they would say they were the only ones. But I was never like the smartest black person in my school. Like there was always yeah. like 18, 15, 20 other black folks who were like, you know, just genius. You know what I mean? And so. It wasn't, yeah, I mean, I was doing well in school, but there was always somebody like, damn, I don't, I don't think I'll ever yeah. get those grades. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a lot about my kind of upbringing and, you know, pre, pre-college stuff, pre-high school stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. How uh, did, did you ask her now that you have a, a daughter how how she was able to consistently? I mean, of course, media not to, not to age you, but media wasn't like everywhere. You didn't have a cell phone yeah. in like middle school or something like that. But how yeah. did she how did she do that? And what was her did she do that intentionally or was that just the the auspice of the household? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't think it was intentional. So my mom was a was a second grade teacher. Uh, she taught in Atlanta public schools, um, and so. That that was in her, you know what I mean, and and that's what she wanted to give me, um, and and she does it now with my daughter, right? Like every time she sees her, she's like, "Hi, my little astronaut," you know, "You're gonna be an astronaut," you know what I mean? So there's, it, it, you you can tell like as soon as you start talking to her, that's that's what she believes for kids, and she believes that that's important for kids, and especially for our children, for Black children, that they get these positive messages. So all of the books that I saw, the T-shirt, she she just gave me a T-shirt for Salome. Daughter, um, that has all these like black greats on it. Mm. It's like this little small t shirt that I used to wear, so she gave it to <laughs> me. Um, for so long when she gets big enough to wear, so that you know, the, the, I remember like having the Negro League jerseys and the Negro League shirts, you had Negro just, League jerseys. Like, what, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So you know, it was like, it, it was just a thing, you know, um, and even like, I think about my uncle, like that's what he um, has, like all of these like black sports figurines and he's got like the Negro League jerseys and shirts and he might have been like the first one um, who got me like a hat or something like that. Um, so that was, that was just like, I, I kind of refer to it as a privilege that I had growing up is that I had a mom who I think really understood that that was super important. Um, like black women typically do, like they don't need a whole bunch of research. They just know, like, <laughs> I'm trying to tell you, <laughs> this is what you need to do. Are you going to listen? Nah, um, you right on that. <laughs> you, you are exactly right on that. Did you, are you were only child? Uh, yeah. My, so my mom's only child. So I have two, I have a brother and a sister, um, that I didn't really grow up with. So my, my sister lives out in Sacramento and my brother, um, is also from Atlanta, but he's a good bit older than me. I think at least by like 15 or 20 years. So, um, you know, 
Yeah. We're, we are, you know, yeah, blended. We have a relationship yeah. now, but like, you know, when you're one and that person is 18, it's not like, okay. <laughs> yeah, back and forth. Yeah, yeah man. So, where did you, you end up going to college at? So, I went to Norfolk State University, uh, Behold the Green and Gold. Uh, you How know, did you even HBC. hear about them either? Man, so it was funny. I took the SAT um, and did okay on it, but basically it was good enough to get into this full scholarship program called mm-hmm. uh, uh, Denemis. Uh, and so if you were doing science, technology, engineering, math, a STEM you know, thing, then they would give you a full ride if you had the grades and you had the scores. Um, and that's how I heard about it. They they sent me a letter and they were like, Hey, we want you to apply for this full scholarship. And I'm like, apply for a full scholarship? You mean I ain't gotta pay for this? No, what? <laughs> so, that's a link. Uh, <laughs> I was like, Yeah, I'm definitely applying. And my mom was like, You're definitely applying. My dad didn't want me to go. <laughs> um, but he he warmed up to it and I think ultimately you know, it was a great decision. It's one of the best decisions of my life. Cause I, even though my mom went to Spelman and like had an HBCU experience, like mm-hmm. I didn't really process or understand what I was about to do and like how different it was going to be. Because again, like you got to remember, like I grew up in Atlanta, like there's a whole bunch of black folks around. And even in my like mixed high school, like there's still a lot of black people who are doing well. And so it wasn't, I didn't really understand what it meant to like go to a predominantly white institution or what it meant to go to a historically black institution. Um, But now having gone and having had another four years of like protection and kind of like this opportunity to think about my identity in like a non-limited way and not be boxing and all this other stuff and things that I don't even think you think about while you're there, but just now kind of reflecting back on it. I'm just super grateful and, you know, just will for always be grateful to my, you know, to my uh, institution, my, my main like school, Norfolk State University. Man, that's huge. And how and you, what was your major when you uh, were in college? Chemistry. Chemistry. Oh, so initially chemistry. And why? So you, and growing up, you always wanted to be a scientist. Was that like the main push for yourself? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was, um, so I actually applied to Georgia Tech, didn't get in. Um, and, and I wanted to go for biomedical engineering, uh, but I was also really good at chemistry. And so Norfolk State didn't have biomedical engineering. You got to think this is like back to 2002. So it's like a brand new like space. Wow. Um, and so I, uh, what I did was, is I did like chemistry with a pre-chemical engineering track at Norfolk State. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to create artificial organs. Like that's what I wrote on all my like college applications. And from the majority of college, that's what I thought I wanted to do was like, after I got done with this degree, I was going to go get a PhD in biomedical sciences and try to figure out how to create artificial organs. So what changed? You know, a lot of stuff, man. Um, two, two things. Um, one thing was, is I, I remember sitting, so I did like these summer undergraduate research opportunities that they do like in the sciences, like they offer this, like if you're in the STEM field and you listen to this right now, <laughs> you need to be looking for like a research opportunity in the summertime, they pay, you know, as well, if not better than like any summer job you're going to find. And it's a whole lot easier work and you learn a lot more. Um, but the third time I did it was actually at UNC Chapel Hill. And I remember um, sitting next to this this black woman next to me and we were in the same lab and I looked at her and I was like, yo, like, why do you do this? 
And she turned and looked at me. She was like, I do it because I love it. <laughs> and I was just like, man, I don't, <laughs> wow. I don't think I feel the same way about this. <laughs> like, I like it. You know, this is cool. This is interesting. But like, I don't know if I love it like that. Um, and the other thing, man, was that when I graduated um, from Norfolk State, there were like six other. I looked at this the other day because of something my mom made for me. There were six like graduates in chemistry period that year. Wow. And I was one of two men who were graduating. And I, I and I realized now that the, the other guy was kind of like older and had come back to school or something like that. Because I, I usually I didn't remember that he actually graduated with us because he wasn't kind of like in our cohort. And I just thought to myself, like, you know, Norfolk State is a fairly big HBCU. Like they average about 8000 people on campus at a time. You know what I mean? Like there's about 8000 students enrolled. And there's only, first of all, six graduating with a chemistry degree. And then there's only two guys that are graduating with a chemistry degree. Wow. Like that math didn't add up to me. Like <laughs> I knew something was wrong with our society, right? Like, and I had a, a suspension, a, you know, a suspicion for a while. Like something ain't, something's not right. Like I was starting to wake up, but like I wasn't there yet, but, and I liked, and I liked tutoring. Like I liked helping people learn chemistry. And so I decided to go teach. Um, I hadn't taken any like education courses or anything like that. Um, but you know, with how the world is set up, if you're a black guy, who's got a chemistry degree and you say you want to go teach science then somebody's going to put you in a oh, class. Somebody going to put you in a classroom ASAP. <laughs> ASAP. ASAP. So, so how was, how was your first year and how long did you end up teaching, man? I ended up teaching for four years. Okay, um, so walk, walk us through like the first year and then walk through the first year, but then also too at the end of it, man, um, yeah. how to kind of feel and, and what did you feel that you gained as a, as a human and what did you feel that you gave? Yeah, I mean, so first year I taught in Hampton City Schools, which is, you know, right there up there next to Norfolk State. Um, and I taught eighth grade and it was great, man. You know, I, I really... I learned a lot about the kids. I, I learned a lot about myself. You know what I mean? Um, and, and I learned, I, I really learned a lot about like when folks don't understand stuff. Mm. Like, I feel like I'm really good at like kind of figuring out when somebody like, missed like the cognitive stare <laughs> like if you think about stairs like going up to the next level like i'm pretty good at being like oh they just missed a step and i don't know if they're gonna recover from that <laughs> like we need to go back to that stair and give them like to make sure that they make so they can see the next step so they can get to where we want them to get right um and that's what i think that experience showed me a lot because teaching physical science and chemistry and all that stuff is like really like logical that like folks need building blocks and if they don't have the building blocks and they can't move to the next place and so i got pretty good at like trying to break down complex ideas or ideas that folks felt like are like really far out there and create analogies and all that other stuff to make sure the kids could understand it um I mean, and I got like energy, man. I got, I got so many lessons, um, you know, so fast forward a little bit. I'm in Atlanta public schools. Um, and there's this, this one student, just brilliant dude, you know, would show up, talk a whole bunch of trash, never really pay attention, but ACE tests. Um, and you know, one day we were doing, so while I was at, while I was in Atlanta public schools, I got a master's in um, education or a master's of arts and teacher. And so we had to do this research project 
And so we sat down and we interviewed this the student because I knew he was going to say something dope and crazy because that's who he was. <laughs> and, you know, asked him, like, about what he thought about schools and, like, what would need to be changed. And, and basically the, the conversation got to this point where he said something about, he was like, you know, y'all ain't really in the community. I was like, I mean, but the school is here. Like, we're in here. He was like, yeah, 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 yeah. The school is is in the neighborhood, but y'all don't come to my neighborhood to do things. You know what I mean? Like, you're not having a the the PTA meeting in my neighborhood. Like, you're not out there on the weekends. Like, you don't, you're not in this neighborhood. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you come here to work, but you don't live here. Um, And those words just kind of really rang true. And I, and I, and I took it personal, you know what I mean? Because I should have, right? Because he was right. Like I did, I wasn't in his neighborhood. I was probably way closer than everybody else because I did live down the street. And if I would have went to high school there, like based on where my house was, like I would have went there, but I still wasn't in his neighborhood. You know what I mean? Yeah, because you could live closer somewhere. Uh-huh. Like we say we in Durham or we live close to East Durham or we live close to train, yeah, yeah. but we, we don't, we don't yeah. beat it. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't be there because you could still live here and still yeah. not be there, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, and so that was that. You know, he just taught me a lot. Um, and and another like situation that happened because um, like one of my, my my people stayed close by, and I remember telling one of my students like, "Yo, you gotta stop hanging around those folks." And this is something, you know, teachers say all the time. You probably said this oh, to yeah. one of your students before, yeah. right? I've said that. So <laughs> I'm at the house, right, at my boy's house, and I look out, and I and I know a lot of the kids in the high school because I'm I'm coaching basketball. And so, like, I'm, you know, when you're a coach, you know a lot of people. Um, and I look out, and I see who he's hanging with, and it's all his family members. <laughs> and it's like... You know, we so this is the thing I took from this is that we say so much to kids like you got to figure out how to get out. You got to get out. You got to get out. You got to get out. That's what we tell them. Right. Like you got to get out of this situation. You got to get away from those people. One, those people are their families. (laughs) That's their friends. It's their parents. (laughs) Hmm. And so what is the message that we're saying about who they come from and who they are? Right. Because I am who my parents are. Right. Mm. I am Lillian. I am Harold Jackson. Like that is they are the biggest part of me that I can think of, you know, and I can't imagine that somebody said, hey, you need to get away from those people. Like I need to get away from my cousins. I need to get away from my brother and sister, you know. So so that's one like key learning. And then the other thing about it is, is that when you tell kids to get out, get out, get out, get out, then think about the other thing that we're really critical of black folks about not giving back right like oh you done got this and now you acting brand new right Mm -hmm. like that's the thing we say all the time but think about the message that we give kids in school all the time get out get out get out so that you can act brand new like that's basically what we're telling kids and so then we get really critical of them when they don't want to give back (laughs) yeah man and so that it it is it, it isn't like oh all of that hit me at the same time while I was sitting there because I just wasn't smart enough <laughs> to connect all those dots, but like over time, that's what has kind of really rested on my soul is that no we need to tell kids they need to stay where they're at, 
the thing, there's nothing wrong with your community. There's nothing wrong with the people in your community. What's wrong is the pressures, is the systems that have been set up to, to make those folks fail and to make the decisions that those people are making. Because some kids ain't out there slinging, you know, selling dime bags for $10, $15 because they think it's cool. Like, they doing that so they can eat. So their mama's light bills can stay on. You know what I mean? Like, and in some situations, like, it's, it's an even worse decision than that. And I ain't even going to talk about. But, yeah. like... You know what I mean? Like, and so like we make these decisions and we, and we say these things about these kids and we kind of distance ourselves from them because I think like what Javante said, we're not there. And if you aren't there, then I feel like you don't really have, you should, you should think about it a little bit harder. You, you should spend some more time there because the more time you spend there, I think the more complicated you 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 begin to understand the situation is and you begin to understand that this actually isn't really about who they're hanging out with it's about the the societal pressures and the systems that have been put into place that make the decision that those kids have to make really really difficult and sometimes impossible yeah you said a lot there and it's it's, i think the biggest thing you said was uh especially dealing with 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 the young people is that insight piece and it's hard to really have informed insight when you don't, when you're not, you know, you're not there consistently. You don't live in those spaces because I mean, a lot of times, especially me as a teacher, when I, my first year teaching, I think half the time I made, I was thinking really intentionally about what I was saying. I talked to those students. I understood, but then there was some time I said, well, I'm black. The student's black and I give them this advice. He should take it. But just me being yeah. black doesn't mean that I understand every black experience. <laughs> like yeah. that, it, no, like it, sure. it, it maybe, maybe. Overt signs of racism. Okay, cool. But I didn't, mm. I didn't, I didn't, that doesn't mean that I had to grow up in certain households or that I currently live in certain situations with other members. Like, I don't know that. So me just saying, like you said, saying little side comments or stuff that we want to help, but we're not really, and I'm not going to call us lazy, but we're not really digging deeper to really help at the root. And that's why a lot of students, the specifically probably the more troublesome students, be like, come on, like they be like, oh, there's all these black teachers in the school. How you have all these black students acting out? It, it, yeah. it's, it's just, it's really layered, man, and it's something to really think yeah. about, man. So, with all that being said, though, why did you end up leaving education? So, I mean, it, it was that. It, so, you know, the first wake up call was like I told you in college, right? Mm-hmm. So I look around, I don't see enough people. I'm like, something ain't right here, and you know, it was the the words of my students. It was the fact that folks like had put all these accolades on me and saying that I was like a great teacher because my kids were getting really good test scores. But the thing was, is like I knew like that integrate test actually didn't mean a lot for that kid. Like you don't put your integrate test scores on your college application. Mm-hmm. Like nobody's checking for that on a resume. So yeah, I was really good at helping kids remember information to take a test. That actually didn't mean a lot for them. It meant more for me than it meant for them mm-hmm. wow. um and that that's not like that wasn't why i came here right like i had a love for teaching like i had a love for helping people understand things and i and i had a love for trying to to address some a social justice issue is what i came to understand later but this wasn't it and when i looked at the system i was like i don't know how i change what i want to change from here <laughs> um and so one thing I really wanted to better understand was like, how do I prepare my kids for life? Because I was preparing them for a test. <laughs> and those are two different things. Sometimes there's some overlap, but those are two different things. 
Um, and so I went to grad school really trying to understand how do kids learn? How do they access information on their own? How do they process? How do they gain information on their own and make sense of it? Because what I was doing is I was giving them prepackaged information. You know, like I was making it easier for them to get it, mm-hmm. but I wasn't necessarily teaching them how to get the information. Mm. Um, There's a big difference. That's why it's yeah. like some things that you may have taught in chemistry could really be important to them in life. However, exactly. if you're just telling them prepackaged information, they're not really receiving it in a way that they can actually utilize it. Yeah. I mean, they utilize yeah. it on a test, but in real life, it's like, bro, this had nothing to do with me. Where it's like, hold up. The the yeah. print some of the principles and things that you learn about teaching it can kind of there's there's it it's, it doesn't stop there so I, I definitely understand and get what you're saying so what was that next move so that I mean that was that was grad school right like that was me going to UNC Chapel Hill to get a degree in education to learn about learning um to learn how kids learn the process of learning and how do you teach somebody that um and so. <laughs> I did that, you know, <laughs> spent the first three years really kind of understanding that and understanding that, you know, there's this guy named Vygotsky that they talk about in the, in the education space. And they say that, you know, it's a Russian dude. And he said that cultural tools are really important to learning. So people learn from the things that they learn in their culture. And, and we use culture as like a proxy or a building block to learn new ideas. Um, and so like things like language and how music and dance and all these things that we do with little kids like this is how they learn language you sing like the abc song and one two three and all this other stuff like that's how they do it you just repeat that stuff and so that's the culture right like the songs are different based on which country you're in if you google like abc songs and you watch a song just a regular joint and then look at ushers look at ushers abc song and you'll understand what i mean by culture Look at Patty LaBelle's like ABC song. Like it's been hitting me in the face now, like raising this little girl. So um, <laughs> I didn't even know she had it. Patty LaBelle got an yeah. ABC song. Okay. Patty LaBelle got the churchiest ABC song. They oh, going. We got to play a clip of that. I think I can put 15 seconds without getting off YouTube SoundCloud. I'll make sure I, I, I play a clip of that. <laughs> oh, but you know, so that's culture though. Like that is our culture. Like when I watch Patty LaBelle, like I know where that came from. Um, and then when you watch some of the other YouTube clips, you see how the culture is different, right? And you see how that culture is probably important as that kid makes sense of things because if they always go to church, if they're always in a black environment, then they're going to probably understand the Usher song and the Patti LaBelle song easier than maybe some of the other songs, even though the information is the same. So it's kind of like inside jokes, like it's certain jokes that people are like, oh, but it's like if you've been in that environment, you get the joke, you understand it or you understand kind of what they're referring. Okay. Exactly. And so you make better connections. You make more connections. Mm -hmm. And so I learned that. I learned that, you know, like the other thing I learned is that self-guided learning is really hard. It takes up a lot of like cognitive space. And what I mean by that is like most people understand this idea of bandwidth, right? Like if if you had slow internet, if you're old enough to remember slow internet and low bandwidth, (laughs) it means only a little bit of information could get through the lines, right? And now we got these wide lines, um, are these wide bandwidths and so more information can get through. And the thing is, is that to do learning on your own, you need a lot of bandwidth because you got to think about the process and you got to think about the content. <laughs> and so if you need to think about both of those things, it's hard. 
And so the thing that you <laughs> is not helpful is that if you have to think about another thing on top of those two things, if I got to think about process and I got to think about what I'm learning and I got to think about the fact that this teacher just kind of did a racial slight towards me, maybe said that I don't belong here, or maybe I just saw like all the black kids that I know in the school are actually in a low remedial class or, hey, I wonder why they can't keep on getting suspended, but it seems like he's doing the same thing David doing. Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm worried about that, while I'm supposed to be thinking about this process and while I'm supposed to be learning this content, it puts me at a disadvantage. And so by learning what learning is, I better understood why our kids were struggling. Man. Because so, okay. I, yeah. I couldn't unsee the stuff. I couldn't unsee what was happening to the kids. Like, I knew the suspension rates. Like, I was in the schools. I saw what was happening. I knew what was different. Right. And so the second that I understood the science behind it, I understood why culture was so important. And I think a lot of times like we try to separate those things. Like we try to say, oh, culture and all this other stuff is soft. No, 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 no. Like it has real cognitive impacts on how kids learn. And with that being said, what was the did you think there was distinct or you you already explained that, but distinct differences by obtaining your master's and now your PhD, like what you've learned kind of through that whole long journey, like those getting the masters, that's a year, two years, PhD, mm-hmm. a long time, rather than saying, what if you would have read the, read a book that it's like, say, say for instance, you would have read a book about culture and all these things from him. Do you think that what did the PhD or that length of time add, or do you think you could have came to the same conclusions while maybe just reading the book? And I'm, I, and there's a reason why I'm asking this question, but just reading yeah. a book or going to a seminar, like, do you think the time was necessary? Was it well spent during the time learning the PhD? Could you, could you answer that? Yeah, I mean, so, yes, I, I think it was time well spent, right? Because it, it gave me some reflection time and it gave me some time to make meaning, right? Like, I, when I started this journey and started teaching, I told you, like, I didn't know anything about education, right? I had just kind of jumped into it, Um and so, like, I, I had some of my own thoughts, but I wasn't super well aware of that. And the other thing I told you is that, like, when I graduated, I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what was wrong. <laughs> so if you ask 2002, you know, Billy, that's what they were calling me at the time, like, what was going on? I wouldn't have been able to tell you all the stuff I just told you. Like, I, I hadn't I had had no time, no room to process all of the things that I was seeing. Um, so that's I think that that's the biggest like benefit of a PhD is that like if you have like a really kind of complex thing that you're trying to figure out and you're trying to understand how the world works around this particular thing, especially PhDs in like the social space, like education, um, sociology, psychology, like that's that's what helps you. Um, and the other thing that a PhD is supposed to be about is supposed to be creating knowledge, right? Like you're supposed to contribute information to a space. And so the other thing, the the reason why it would have been really hard for me to get some of these insights is that some of this information just wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. So the 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 best book that I've read that kind of like recounts what I just said, um, and probably says it better because she wrote the book. Um, Zaretta Hammond has this book on uh, neuroscience and culturally responsive education. Um. And she talks about these things of like how culture impacts the cognitive uh, processes or like how the brain works and why that's important for how we teach kids in schools. Um, And so that book didn't come out till 2016. (laughs) It's 2018. Wow. 
you know what I mean? Like I was, I was four, maybe five years into my PhD process when the book hit the shelves, right? And it's, it is the first book that I've seen that kind of does that good a job of describing what I just talked about. And so for me, there was a particular thing that the knowledge that I was actually trying to acquire just wasn't there yet mm-hmm. because you got to think about our history, you know, we're 50, 60 years out of um, the civil rights movement, right? We're, we're less than 200 years away from slavery. Like we, we actually haven't, black folks haven't had time and the privilege of academia long enough to create the knowledge that we need to create to be able to deal with <laughs> the oppression that we're faced with. Man, uh, that's heavy. That's heavy. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I, if if that's like what you're trying, if that's what's keeping you up at night, if that's what's scratching your head, if that's what you're trying to access knowledge around, then there might be a good reason for you to get a PhD because arguably maybe the knowledge that you're looking to gain is not has not been written yet. And you're the one that you've been waiting on. Got you. Because I've always thought that that because I'm always like, yo, four years. I mean, I understand. Daughter, you don't want to just hand that out, but I'm like, in, in, yeah, in four yeah. years, that's a that's fast, that's a fast track. Four to yeah, eight yeah. years, really. I'm like, that's that's almost a decade of life. Like, what? How, like every yeah. single day, 365. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are you doing? Like, can you read that yeah, many yeah. books? Can you write that many papers? Can you like, what? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and and for me personally, my journey was eight years because I was doing all this other stuff, right? Like, I started a nonprofit about four years in or three years in um, I was consulting you know probably after a year so all these other things I was you know I was using my time definitely in class but I was also spending time outside of that right and that meant that I wasn't pushing my research forward as fast as other people were but those experiences definitely dramatically changed like what my dissertation was about what I ended up you know understanding and so you know I think everybody has their path some folks just need that PhD because like it's a job thing and they know clearly like this is going to help me do X, Y, and Z. For me, that was a little bit less clear. I wasn't super sure what I was going to do when I got done. Gotcha. Because when you started, because I, I definitely want to get to how you created and the next thing we're going to get to is how you created and, and what led you to create Village of Wisdom. But what did, like, when you started the PhD program, what did you think? That would happen after did you did you think that you were gonna go be academic or like what was what was the goal or did you just start and like yo I'm I'm a I'm, I don't know where I'm gonna land this plane but yeah. yo we about to get in this thing yeah I mean I, I would definitely say it was more of the latter right um I I wasn't I didn't I had a pretty strong hunch that I wasn't just gonna go and be a professor right like folks would ask me like oh are you gonna go teach and I was like I'm probably not um uh I I think I knew. I, I wanted to be in the school systems and I just wanted to be at like a higher level to like impact how teachers were like teaching um, and how like education was working in school systems or like adjacent to that. And I didn't really know anything about nonprofits at that time when I was going there. Like I didn't know anything. Like I was 25, um, had, you know, taught for those four years and I just really didn't understand a lot about the social justice space um, or the nonprofit space. Uh, So I didn't see Village of Wisdom. I thought maybe I might start my own school kind of going in. Uh, But I I, I wanted to be able to like impact how people were thinking about what how we were doing school. 
Mm. Um, that was that was the it. You know what I mean? I didn't know what job that was going to be. You know, so I guess I, I was pretty clear about the career. <laughs> I didn't know what that job would be, though. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. So with that being said, what what led to outside of, of course, you shared your narrative already, but Village of Wisdom, where did that come from? Did it come like where did, where did it all uh, come from during your during your research and during your time in your Ph.D. program? Yeah, I mean, so so the biggest thing that happened was, is that while after I took like all of those kind of just learning about learning courses um, and self-regulated learning is like the way they refer to it. Um, I ended up taking this course on, on racial identity and socialization, socialization. So I was looking for a course uh, one of the years, like as I was getting close to the end of my coursework. And I was looking for a course and I came across this course and I was like, man, this looks really interesting. I had never heard about racial identity and racial socialization. Um, so I took the course and basically like the short version of the course is, is that when black folks feel good about their identity, like they have better mental health outcomes and they have better education outcomes. <laughs> mm. um, and so couple that information with I was working for this consultant firm that does a lot of consulting in the philanthropic space or to like large foundations like, you know, the Kellogg Foundation gives out a lot of money or the Ford Foundation gives out a lot of money every year. And in particular, during that period, there was a, a big push around boys and men of color. Um, and, and that big push ends up like being the, the climax of that ends up being the My Brother's Keeper initiative that President Obama puts out. Right. So this consulting firm is like helping people think about this. And so I'm getting the purview of like hearing about all these national programs that work with boys of color. And the thing that was really kind of strange to me is that I was looking at the people that were being funded. And it was a lot of people working with boys of color or black boys or brown boys. Um, and they weren't talking about the fact that they were black. <laughs> like, mm. how, how do you help people who are suffering from a racial academic opportunity gap <laughs> and you don't talk about race. If your sole intervention is to give more tutoring to those kids, <laughs> to give, you know, more STEM classes to those kids and not to say that they don't need those opportunities because those opportunities would be equitable. That would mean that they would got, they got the same thing other kids got. But you don't deal with the fact that the reason that they're not getting that stuff is because we have a system set up that says that if you look a certain way, then you don't get the same resources. And you think that those kids don't understand that? Like, you think of, if you think back to the student I was telling you about, you think he didn't understand the fact that the black kids on the south side of Atlanta don't get the same opportunities as the white kids on the north side of Atlanta? Mm. But when you go and try to help them, quote unquote, which is another whole like issue, you don't actually talk about the fact that, yeah, I know when you get pulled over by the police, they're going to hem you up unnecessarily and you got to hold your hands on 10 and 2 and you just need to keep it cool. But we're not going to talk about the fact that like your race is a part of that. That's and so that was just kind of crazy to me because I was like, isn't this like a big part of the problem? <laughs> and of course, you know, the more I learn about how culture is impacting these things and the more I learn about learning and how like if your attention is diverted, then it's not a great time to learn. Like I went from having a hunch about like that seems messed up to knowing that it was messed up. Um, and the other thing that kind of rang 
that I was just reading a lot and, and looking at how people talked about black parents. And it was just like always negative. Like, you know, black dads ain't nothing. They don't want to be anything. Um, you know, black mothers are uh, welfare queens and all this other stuff. And I saw people blaming parents for a lot. And I remember people blaming parents for a lot when I was in a classroom. But the thing that I couldn't remember was a mom or a dad who didn't care about their kids when I talked to them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like they wanted the best for their kids. Did they know how to get there all the time? Nah. But why would they if we think about it? Um, and so I wanted to create an organization that one kind of dealt with the racial identity of the children because I knew that that actually made these kids, and this is the kicker, more resilient to experiencing kind of interpersonal racial bias. Meaning that if you have low expectations of me or you call me the N-word or you try to keep me out of this gifted class or you tell me that I don't belong, the way that I'm resilient through that experience is by remembering who I am. Right. And so that goes back to the stories of my mom telling me who I was when I was a really young kid that I could be a black scientist because there were all of these black scientists. And so whenever I had those experiences, it didn't matter because my identity was so built up that your negative perceptions of me couldn't actually impact my self-esteem. And so I was trying to start an organization now that I understood those things that would support parents as they did that for their children. Man, that's uh, so that's huge. And I think the thing that I took out of it, not one of, I took a lot out of that. But the biggest thing you said, something at the end, as far as your strength and your comfort in those times where maybe there was some racial tension or you've been doubted or slighted was in who you were. But I guess, I guess, what you're saying is some some people or some, especially when you're dealing with children. If they don't have necessarily a strong identity of who they are. So when those times come, they automatically go through these self, self-defeating thoughts of, you're right. I, my, they, they create kind of their own low yeah. self expectations, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, think about how many times you've heard an athlete, a rapper, a whoever who's a black person who's made it that said, like, I remember the time my sixth grade teacher told me that I was going to be dead and in jail by the time I hit 21. How many times have you heard that? Yeah. And so how many kids get that message and don't have the resilience of that particular person? And we blame the kid for not having that resilience instead of blaming the teacher for saying that crazy stuff. Yeah. And then those scars run deep because you, as you see, a lot of the, and, and not a lot. I'm not, I'm, I'll be, I'll be very privy of my words. Not a lot, but there, mm-hmm. there's, there's been instances where, where rappers that when they, when they lose, when they lose money or when they lose things, they, they go back to, not go back to, but they just, it, there's a, it, it creates a whole lot of issues. And a lot of them really don't stay on top for too long. Um, because yeah. it's not, it, it, they can achieve all the success, all this validation from the world and everything else. However, if you really don't have a strong foundation of kind of who you are, and I think everybody could take something out of this in general, not even children, yeah. but if you're really not based with a strong foundation of who you are, when obstacles come, you will crumble. Like you're going yeah. to go believe like it's it, no matter how successful you think you are. Like I just got an article today about a couple people that, that, uh, and th- these people weren't black, but they committed suicide and they were wealthy or fluent. Mm-hmm. We've, we've seen people all in the news, but if you're not mm-hmm. really a base in your foundation of who you are, um, the things that you accomplish, the things people say about you, I really don't mean nothing. Yeah. 
No, it doesn't. I mean, and the other thing that like has become a more important piece of village of wisdom is that there's this mental health piece to all of this, right? And like in general, in our country, we just don't have the access to mental health that we should. Um, we don't respect it as a country as a whole, like across race. And in, and in particular, it's really difficult for black families to access the type of mental health care that they need to access to take care of yourself, right? Because you have to be able to survive those injuries. And as and I wish it was as simple as saying like, hey, if you get these positive black messages that, you know, you'll be good. And, and that's a big part of it, right? But another big part of it is, is that if you don't have access, just like if you broke your leg and you don't have access to a doctor to fix your leg, that leg will kill you. <laughs> if you break your mind, that mind will kill you if you don't have access to a doctor that can fix your mind. You know what I mean? Or help you get to a healthier place where your mind is. And I think that that's kind of what, you know, that you're referencing that. But that's another thing that we've seen come up a lot with you know village of wisdom and the families that we're working with it's just like we have to really rethink about how we give access to mental health care in this country if we really want folks to stop shooting themselves and shooting other people mm, you hit it on the gun head. thing would be nice too but <laughs> <laughs> so with that being said what was the first steps and this i'm gonna I'm go ahead and lay because you, you're perfect with storytelling so i'm gonna go ahead and lay out a full question what was the first steps you took towards getting Village Wisdom off the ground? And then if mm -hmm. you can, over the last couple of years, just showing kind of where it's grown to date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, getting it off the ground, I, I had self-doubt. Like, you know, this is why I like having good people around you is so important. Because uh, even somebody like me, I wasn't like living in myself. Like I had this idea I kind of knew that it needed to be done. Somebody I was working with, a, um, I was mentoring at a, a local elementary school and the guy kind of walked up to me. He was like, man, this is cool, but I really need a program for parents. You know, can you ask your people at Frontline? He knew some, he knew that I knew some folks at Frontline about like, do they have a parent program? And I had just gotten done actually creating the model for like the first version of Village of Wisdom and like a PhD course. And I was like, yo, I got I got something, you know, let me try it. Um, and so I quickly found out about Echo and Green, which is like a social entrepreneurship fellowship, like a, a I guess, an international social entrepreneurship fellowship. And I remember like being in the office at Frontline and being like, oh, I don't think I can apply for this. Because at the time I was really coming from a research place and the fellowship was like for research. And so that was the excuse I was making. Like, well, I think it's research. They ain't going to fund it. <laughs> so I shouldn't even apply. And I remember my one of my mentors, Michael, was like, what are you talking about? Like, put the application in. <laughs> like, you, That is not an excuse. You know what I mean? And so like it was really important for me at that time to have somebody around me. Because as much as we talk about like having faith in yourself and all this other stuff, like you need folks to remind you who you are. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, I put the application in and was like lucky enough to be chosen as a fellow. And that gave me about $70,000 in seed capital, um, to start the organization. Um, and so we did the pilot in that elementary school that I was telling you about, um, and got started in <laughs> another time, like I'm just thinking about the barriers that I think maybe entrepreneurs kind of commonly kind of create for ourselves that are 
on the simpler side, um, applying for my registration for the organization. Like I kept on putting it off, putting it off, putting it off because I thought it was going to be like this super hard thing to do. And I one night, like it was like one thirty in the morning, <laughs> and I just went on the Secretary of State site and I filled the application out, and I was done in less than like twenty minutes. And before I woke up the next morning, they had sent me an email saying that I was registered. <laughs> wow! And it's just like that's you know, a nonprofit. Not as a not as a nonprofit, but as a legal entity, right? Like oh. you can get your tax um, ID number, uh, not the nonprofit one, but like you get you get registered by the state that you are like a, an actual organization, right? And sometimes my point there is to say that a lot of times we create these barriers in our head about like how complicated something's going to be or how hard it's going to be without even actually looking at it, <laughs> without even understanding what it is to do that thing. Um, and especially like in the age of the internet, like it's just kind of inexcusable, like look to see what it is that you need to do to get it done. You know what I mean? Um, and sometimes you probably find out that maybe this thing that you were kind of making up in your head as being super complicated is actually not that hard. Yeah. Now you hit on the head. So once, so once you got that ball ready and you had your first pilot then you had to see mm-hmm. capital. So like, I mean, that's yeah, every yeah. entrepreneur's dream, right? You have, mm-hmm. you get a pilot, you get some money. It wasn't like you got a, a couple grand, like you got 70 grand, like and, and yeah, talk yeah, to yeah. this too. Once you get the yeah. capital, because I think sometimes we miss that. I, I know I've had people on the show that bootstrapped everything. I've had people on the show that have been able to get a lot of money. But once you mm-hmm. get what, but I, we never really talk about once you get that first initial investment, like, because it, it's, it's just idea. And now you have all this money. How did you, how did you go about allocating those resources and thinking through all that stuff? Because that's brand new. This is just an idea you had. You didn't even want to put this out here. And now you got a fellowship. You have a little bit of money. And for some people, like yeah. 70 grand, you can do a lot with that. But then they just walk mm-hmm. us through, walk, walk us through that process for you. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like, if you're going to pay yourself, I was when I walked away Atlanta Public Schools, like I think I was making like forty eight thousand dollars a year because of like I was coaching and all this other stuff. So like just think about that real quick, do the numbers for the folks who ain't like used to run a payroll. If I wanted to pay myself what I was making as a teacher like five, six years ago, <laughs> I, you know, would have to pay myself forty eight thousand dollars, which isn't like a lot of money, I don't think, you know, for most folks. And on top of that, you got to pay payroll taxes with that, right? And you got to get benefits and you got to get a payroll provider <laughs> and you need somebody to run your books. You know what I mean? Like, so that $70,000 is like a salary, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so the first couple of years, I just didn't spend the money because I was still in grad school. So I was still, and I, I had, um, I was, you know, doing a little bit of work here and there for Frontline and I was like in a good situation at, at home with my wife. And, you know, she's just been a, a huge blessing for us in Village of Wisdom. Um, and so I was I was really tight with the money. Like I, I probably didn't spend that seventy thousand dollars. I got, you know, a lot of it in like late 2014. And by the end of 2015, I probably excuse me, I probably had all of it um, and probably didn't really spend. I might have spent maybe $15,000 over that like first year, two years. Um, it didn't really start spending money until late 2015. And really the beginning of 2016 was the first time that I hired somebody because I, because I did get the money early. <laughs> in my stage, right? Like it was my, my organization, the idea, it was really in the idea phase, right? And so 
for me, it, it took some time for me to understand what I needed to spend the money on. Mm-hmm. And I was and I had the benefit, the privilege and not everybody has this privilege. I had the privilege of kind of waiting, you know, and kind of holding on to my money as I better understood what I should spend it on. Um, <clears throat> and essentially in 2016, I realized that I needed somebody to engage with parents, which wasn't like a big like uh <laughs> you know, it should have been fairly obvious because yeah. I was doing parent work. <laughs> and and I also wanted somebody who could help me like understand the data that we were getting in, right? And, and to kind of better understand how we should process that data and what data we should be collecting. So, you know, even though I spent all this time in school, like it's just, sometimes you need some distance. You need other people to kind of help you think about how you're going to collect data on stuff. Um, and so, that's what I did. I, I spent some money on some contractors, um, hired them to kind of help me do this work and help me begin to think about it. Um, and that's how I kind of started spending the first kind of bigger amounts of money. I spent money before, but that that was like my first decision was like on personnel to get the work done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you start spending that money. You're like, man, I got to raise some money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, like, cause that's $70,000. Like once you start paying two, three people, like that's going to go quick. Um, and so like, you know, I, I, ever since I got the fellowship, like I remember. So in 2016, we actually didn't do any programming. <laughs> Wow. Like the only programming we did was like these like kind of like easy lift. Uh, uh, we called them field trips. Yeah, I remember. Like, I, yeah, I was, I was like, always asked like, yo, gee, what's the next program? He was like, yeah, we're doing this. I, said, <laughs> I, I was, it was great, but I was like, yo, it's 2016. It's like three or four things. <laughs> you in the lab, make it out the lab. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you got to get it. And especially like if you get that money early in your phase, like you got to know what you're going to do. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and you got to know that what you're doing is actually going to have an impact. And so yeah. to kind of pull people in the process a little bit, one thing was is that I was in this fellowship program with like all these amazing social entrepreneurs from across the world. And this one dude sat me down and he was like, you know, so what you going to do? And I was like, man, I don't know, man. He's like, I'm, oh, and I did know. I was like, I'm trying to run these workshops. I'm trying to run these workshops. I'm trying to get these parents through. Like, I'm, a, I'm getting it. You know, I'm ready. And he was like, how much money you got? And I was like, I got this money. Like, that's it. What you talking about? What you mean? How much money I got? And he was like, he's like, don't do anything else. Wow. So like, don't do anything else. <laughs> he was like, you got to raise money. Because if you don't raise money, then you won't exist. And if you don't exist, then you can't do anything. (laughs) And that was like the first kind of time it hit me like, man, I don't have actually any money to extend this. And I don't have a lot of good leads on where to raise money from. Um, And so uh, a big part of 2016 was me trying to figure out how we were going to raise money. How were we going to stay financially solvent? Um, and also like, what was our program going to look like? And if you're doing stuff, especially if you're like a sole proprietor or you don't have a lot of staff, it was a lot to pull off those field trips. Yeah. Yeah. No, nah, <laughs> you know yeah, I, mean? I, like, I, I, I could totally understand. It's not like you have event coordinator can, that do logistics, can contact people to make sure we have good customer service to make sure it's, it's a lot. I get you. <laughs> so, you know, it's a lot to do that stuff. And and if you're going to say you're going to do the field trips and you're going to do workshops on top of that, that would have been all of my time. And I would have been working 60, 80 hours a week. And I still wouldn't have been in a place where 
as of 2016, we would have been done because I wouldn't raise no money. <laughs> you know, and so I really had to kind of figure out how we were going to raise money. And so we started doing some consulting gigs, kind of convincing people like, hey, we could do some work for you. Like you're really trying to understand how to better reach your parents of color or you want a better kind of tool for working with your kids of color and, and, and you don't really know how to talk about race because you got, I mean, we've gotten, you know, we kind of fast forward now and people are doing all these racial equity trainings in 2018. But I mean, as recently as 2016, folks were super lost. I think people are still super lost, but like people were just kind of barely talking about it two, three years ago. Um, and what we actually did, the way we flipped it was, is that I really tried to build consulting engagements that were like research and development for our organization. So we were creating things for other organizations, but also kind of refining our contribution to the space and our field. And I was beginning to understand like what people wanted to spend money on and how folks would spend money in the nonprofit space, because at the end of the day, like as a nonprofit, you're trying to get some sustainability. So you need to figure out how you're not going to necessarily be getting money from foundations for the rest of your life, because that's just not the life you want to live. Foundations have cycles, you know, a program manager could leave or a grant manager could leave and you might not have them anymore. They could change their uh, priorities and now you don't have that funding. So you really want to figure out a way to earn revenue. And that's what we were kind of doing. But we also kind of learned more about our organization because as we were kind of creating these tools for other organizations, we were also kind of improving what we had internally. Um, and so that was kind of like my like flip it kind of moment in Village of Wisdom was trying to understand that. But also the cost of us starting to do so many different things was that our organization was getting super wide and not very deep. Mm. And so that's kind of the lesson that we're learning right now is trying to figure out how do we bring the organization back in? Because in 2017 and 2018, like we really gotten out there. Yeah, y'all been pushing, boy. I'm like the fest. Y'all got fest, uh, capsules, uh, apparel, photo shoots. Like it, it's it's exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we got all this, you know, outward stuff, but like internally, like it does cause some strife, right? Because like people who are working with their families every day are like, you know, well, how does this serve our work? Or folks in the consulting space might feel d distant from the people who are doing the brand work. And really all of that stuff should be working together. Uh, but what you, what you can do as like you get desperate, which is kind of like what I did is I like, got desperate, like, okay, well, we need to sell these t-shirts so we can have a little bit of money. You know what I mean? Like we got to get these consulting contracts so we can have a little bit of money. We need to do this research grant so we can get a little bit of money. The thing is, is that you stretch your stuff and you stretch yourself. And if you don't think about it intentionally, if you don't really plan how to kind of make all of that stuff work together, then you'll end up being super wide and folks are going to feel disconnected even inside of your own organization. And so we really been kind of struggling with that and trying to pull ourselves back together. Um, and so we're about to go kind of, we're about to do a 2016 move again. Like, Hey, we got this black genius fest. We got our uh, Juneteenth celebration, but it's going to be a moratorium. Like if it ain't, a direct parent workshop like we're not going to do anything else for the rest of 2018 and just because i need to go back in the fundraising mode like i need to do a reassessment and our organization needs to pull itself closer together so that we can kind of go at problems 
more as a unit as opposed to being kind of like separate entities, which is like really how we're operating now. Man, so first of all, thank you for just sharing that. And I got two questions that that come to mind. Um, as as always, people are like yo, great. Why do you always ask two questions at the same time? They're just I don't know. I, I wasn't technically trained, so that's what that's how I like to do it. Uh, <laughs> with certain guests, because certain guests, I'm like, no, one question at a time, because they can barely answer that one. But I I know I can give you two, and you'll hit them. Uh, the first question being, can you talk about as you're about to go on one now, but that clear space that whole year in 2016, which you like, how how did you? What was your mindset on making sure that was a, a as positive experience as it could be when you weren't actually doing a lot of work? Like you were doing a lot of stuff internally, but it wasn't really manifesting. Mm-hmm. And the reason why, yeah. because I know there might be some entrepreneurs out there that are maybe resetting their brand, starting something new, or just taking a pivot or taking time off. And a lot of times yeah. we think about time off, we think about inactivity, not doing nothing, laziness. And yeah. half the time, no, that's, that's not really the case. But speak mm-hmm. about how your mindset can be to stay positive, to stay encouraged and keep moving forward when you take a lengthy time off. And then the mm-hmm. second question would be to those entrepreneurs that are listening like, I wish I had 70 grand. He talked about he needed to raise money. He got 70 grand. If I had mm-hmm. 10 grand, I'd be doing X, Y, and Z. Could you speak to that person yeah. there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so dealing with the first part, just, I mean, for me, it wasn't like, I guess I didn't have a whole lot to stay positive about because I understood. Like, if if I need a parent, if I need somebody to work with the parents at the very least, and I probably need somebody else to kind of help me with the strategy work. And there's another person that's needed to kind of handle the books and the, the bookkeeping and kind of make sure that you're because the thing is, is the second that you get something like seventy thousand dollars, folks are gonna start looking at you. And then you gotta remember what we do. <laughs> We're a black organization doing anti-racism work in a country ran by our current president. Mm-hmm. So if you don't think like we have scrutiny, if you don't think people are, aren't wishing on our downfall, like you, you don't have probably a very full worldview, right? Like, so I knew that our stuff had to be tight. Right. And so it's not like, yeah, I mean, I could have figured it out and we could have finagled some stuff, but our books wouldn't have been up to date. Like I wouldn't have been able to pay a bookkeeper. Like we wouldn't be able to pay for, have our taxes done, right? An audit of your organization costs $10,000. Like, you know, like I think the thing that kind of kept me in that moment was like, I don't know enough about what I'm doing right now and what I need to be doing because there's one thing of knowing like how you're going to impact the culture and how you're going to impact your people. And that's, you know, your, your nonprofit work. It's another thing to know how to run that nonprofit. Mm, especially and nothing nonprofit. I, yep. <laughs> and nothing that I talked about. And even in the business space, like you got to know what it means to kind of get a, a first and a second round investor, like what your pitch deck is supposed to be, what kind of like payback periods you're going to have, what kind of loan did they give you? What does that investment like? You need to understand all of that stuff of your space. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, like you're responsible for that stuff. And if you don't know that language, if you don't know how to talk about it, if you don't know what it is, then you're not going to go anywhere because people are going to ask you questions. And you probably been in these conversations where like an investor or a funder talks to you and they want to know right now, what's your budget? And it ain't no like, oh, well, you know, I'm thinking like 125, but really it's got, no, you need to be able to say, hey, we're looking at a budget of 350K and next year we want to expand to 450. Mm -hmm. And then if they ask you why, you need to be saying, you need to say like, well, you know, our salary expenses are running probably close to $180,000. We have to 
our program expenses are close to 60. Uh, and then we have another overhead of about 20,000. Like you need to be able to run that stuff off the top of your head. And if you can't, those people start looking at you crazy because you can see. I don't know if you've ever had this conversation, but you're talking to that person and you can see that they just stop paying attention. <laughs> oh yeah, like I, um, luckily I'm not I'm not necessarily in that space, but I've interviewed people and I know people personally that are in the in the spaces of revenue, and it's like, nah, you need to have that because I mean, because the other yeah. people that want money, they have that, so it's like to continue on mm-hmm. that gravy train, continue having those resources. Yeah. Nah, you need yeah. to know that. Yeah, so you you got to know that, and and that's what kind of kept me in that moment. It's like I just just so much stuff I need to know. Like there was nothing. Yeah, I got a PhD. Yeah, I did all this um, teaching and the, you know chemistry and all that other stuff, but I ain't got nothing to do with running a business. You know what I mean? Um, and so that was a lot of like what I was understanding and learning, and I was also trying to figure out how to communicate our work to the world. Because <laughs> the other thing is like I'm largely going to ask rich white folks for money to do anti-racism work for black families. Mm-hmm. And the, really how we understand our profits in this space is like through charity. Meaning that like, we think we should do this work because we feel sorry for people and we need to give them something. We don't think about it as like these individuals actually deserve this and a whole lot more. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and, and if you're coming from a charity perspective, it actually puts you kind of in a weird place when you start thinking about the fact like maybe this is unfair that I got all this money. You know what I mean? Like and when you're asking people for money, having them uncomfortable, is just not it's not an ideal situation. So I had to think a lot about like, how are we going to communicate this to the world? How do we build a brand? How do we build the stories that are going to be compelling enough to kind of draw us donations and resources? So that's that's kind of what kept me is just like. I, I didn't feel any anxiety about not doing anything because I was like, I need to figure out what I am doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, oh. but even that, yeah. like that, that is still big because to me, what I'm doing, because, and it's kind of, it might be a US worldview, but it's like mm-hmm. when people are like, what am I doing? They're like, hold up, man. It's like, oh, you this brother, guy working on his PhD, he's married, mm-hmm. doing all this other stuff, and he and, and he don't got no nine to five. He he's spending he's spending weeks a month worrying about what he's doing. And so it's mm-hmm. like a lot of social stuff that may be backed in. Like friends, hey, how's how's things going? Oh, yeah, I, I don't teach them why I don't do this. So what are you doing? Well, we, yeah. like when you get that, when you got that question during that moment, mm-hmm. like, what did you say? Yeah. Like, I'm thinking, or I'm just in the, I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I, I'm ideating. They're like, okay, if you, yeah. you were ideating two months ago, like, how long you gonna ideate? <laughs> like, how do you keep that? Because the yeah. reason why I'm asking, like, I've been there before and I know others have been in spaces and it, when you get social constructs or other people. So how do you, <laughs> how do you deal with that? Yeah, man. I, you know, I would just tell folks like, Hey, you know, really we're, we're not doing any programming this year. Like we have our field trips and, and we had stuff to kind of keep people. We had snacks. You know what I mean? <laughs> like folks wasn't just going straight hungry. Like we was giving folks snacks. So that was, I think enough to kind of keep people at bay. And some people probably will argue. And I would even argue with myself that I don't even know if we needed to do those snacks. Like it would have been okay. <laughs> like at the end of the day, I think we probably would have figured it out. But um, that that was that was part of it. Right. So you think about the snacks that you can do that's not going to take up a lot of your time and energy, but has high value for your constituents and the people that you're talking to. And then, you know, for the people who are close to you, like they understood, like the people opinions that I really care about, they knew what I was doing because <laughs> they knew the work. You know what I mean? Like, and you got to ask yourself, is the people who ask you this question who don't understand what you're doing, do they even understand what this is all about? Because <laughs> if they don't, then why do you care about what they're thinking? 
Oh, like if if I had that conversation with you, Greg, I'm pretty sure you would be like, oh, yeah, I get it. I get it. Like I had to go through this. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like when I'm talking to Micah, or when I'm talking to, to Rhonda, or I, I'm talking to any of like my people who do this work. Like they weren't like, oh, I'm, where you going to get it together? You know what I mean? Like that's just not how they push. <laughs> yeah. The push is, OK, well, let me see your, where your strategic plan at. Let me let me see your budget. You know what I mean? Like. What, what have you been working on? Because they know what those products are, right? It's not like you don't have products. It's just that the normal everyday person who isn't like doing this entrepreneurship stuff isn't really kind of appreciating that, right? Because their work is a different type of work. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to really ask yourself, you know, it's just like if you were a, a mathematician and somebody come in and they like, why are you messing with all this math right now? Like Einstein <laughs> ain't trying to explain that to somebody who off the street. Uh-huh. But if, you know, Copernicus or, you know, some other <laughs> scientist come in there, he like, yo, let me tell you, like, it's crazy. You know what I mean? Because it's just a different language. So that's I mean, for me, that's what it was. And the other thing, and I'll just say this real quick was, is I remember that there was a a white entrepreneur in the space who was basically being bankrolled for two years. So he was getting paid <laughs> to just plan and project plan. And they had already had set up the money that he was going to use once he got done with the planning phase. And so I saw that. Like, I saw how that privilege was working. <laughs> and I was mm. like, I'm not going to I'm not going to beat myself up when this person is like, <laughs> like, you think I had a gravy train like you have no idea how much money they're moving. You know what I mean? Like, so I think the other thing is like we start to get real critical of ourselves. Like, well, man, I can make something out of nothing and all this other stuff. And that's cool. Yeah, you can. But I also want you to understand <laughs> that the way that money works in this country is that you're probably putting too much pressure on yourself and you probably need to be asking for more money. Mm-hmm. And, and, and at minimum, if you have like if you have the privilege of having time where you can create and just think about exactly. things and work, then utilize it and not beat yourself because it's not, it's not like, OK, it's, it's, I'm taking too much time. Like like you said, I know people that have have startups that didn't make money for four or five years, like did not exactly. make money for four or five years. <laughs> And they had that time to play around on assortment of different ideas, had a time to just do a lot. And they, and a lot of them, it wasn't like they was beating the pavement every day. Some of them were not. They were spinning bread. But that's neither here nor there. But, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and the other thing I would add to that, Greg, is that a lot of times, see, this is and these are the conversations we don't have. Folks get planning grant money. I like a lot of times, like a lot of times, like we are in this rush to do work to make impact. And what we don't understand is that a lot of times folks will get hundreds of thousands of dollars to do planning. (laughs) And so, and maybe you can't get a full out grant like that, but if you put that in there, you say, well, Hey, I'm a, I'm gonna put six, $7,000 in here for time just to kind of create this plan, the strategy, right. And then or to to further develop it. And then I'm also going to put some money here to evaluate it. Right. Like a lot of times we don't even think about that because we just like, oh, well, all this money going to go out the door directly to to this thing that we're working on. But at the end of the day, now you don't have any documents. You don't have any proof of what you've done. You're trying to now you're trying to go back to another person and tell them like how dope it was. But you don't actually have any proof of how dope it was because you didn't pay for that. Mm. 
you know what I mean? And so like a lot of times, like, uh, you know, my advice to a lot of folks that I work with and who kind of been coming up behind me is like, make sure that you account for that stuff. Make sure that you put that stuff in your budget because people aren't going to look at you crazy a lot of times when you put it in your budget because they think that that's savvy. And a lot of times if you don't have it in your budget, that's when they're going to be like, well, I don't know how this is going to work out because how are you going to pay for this? What, what are you going to do? How are you going to show me that this actually works or, or means something? <laughs> Nah, man, that's some, you, you throw some jewels, throw some jewels, man. So, uh, with that being said, as we kind of transition and, and get towards the end of the show, we know we have our rapid fire round, but I have a couple more questions before you can get there. First, what do you think the future is going to look like for, for Village of Wisdom in like, say, 2019, 2020? Like, what is, what does the future in your eyes look like? I mean, knowing what you know now, cause I know that's a big question yeah. and a lot of things may change, but what would you envision the future would look like for Village of Wisdom? Yeah, I mean, so we really want to kind of get back to the roots of like what we said we were going to do, which is like support organ support parents as they um, become advocates for their kids in schools and to create more equitable learning environments. And so that means that we need to figure out ways to put parents in positions to be voices that are heard and respected. <laughs> Um, and that can contribute to systemic decisions that are making in school systems. Um, and so that's going to be our push for the next two or three years to become that organization, to be successful and to do that successfully here in Durham and in the Triangle. Um, and simultaneously, what we're also doing is creating um, electronic tools or database tools that help parents tell these stories. Um, so we have a partner called Discriminology that does technology work for it, um, and they visualize uh, school equity data. And so we've been working a lot with them to kind of to create uh, an ecosystem, a platform, a software as a service tool that really allows people to get key KPIs, key performance indicators on how racial equity is working in schools. And then on our side, we're really trying to understand how we communicate that to parents and make sure that they can kind of understand that language and make that language simple enough to where they can use it in their advocacy efforts. Um, and so what that does is one, it kind of helps us get to our ultimate goal, right? Which is like removing an achievement gap and, and making sure that kids understand, get a better, more equitable learning environments. At the same time, that's our software as a service project product that's technology based really allows us to attract some passive income and really help us help us find a way to uh, greater financial sustainability. I got that. And how could you break that down? So say, for instance, because I I, 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 I I can understand that 80 percent. But as a parent, so say, for instance, in 2019, I'm a parent for elementary school uh, for I got an elementary school kid and I just I want him to understand more of himself and and all that good stuff. And I want to become a better parent to him as well, because I mean, it's just not on him. It's, 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 a, it's a tandem team. What would that look like in a school or using that tool? I know you're I know it's like you're forecasting, but potentially what would that look like? I'm just trying to just in my head envision what that what that suite would look like. You said, OK, uh, would it look like tutorials, classroom would it look like like what would what do you think that would look like? 
Yeah, so so basically our services right now are kind of separated into four different areas. Um, the first one is like parent trainings around uh, advocacy and also kind of increasing the number of positive messages that your child hears about their racial identity or their blackness, right? So black is beautiful, black is smart, and really pushing parents to think about how many times they hear negative messages about that <laughs> and and being able to to provide the to balance that, right? So if they hear those negative messages six, seven, eight times a day, that means that you got to give eight, nine, 10 positive messages to outweigh it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so our workshops kind of look like that. And then the, the other side of our workshop is really thinking about how do we begin to kind of get parents to understand what's going on in schools? So um, some people who are close to education and kind of pay attention to this stuff probably know these numbers, um, but black kids can be three, four, sometimes six times as likely to be suspended for the same things in school as their white counterparts. So what that looks like is like if you have a cell phone, um, I got a cell phone, but then my, my, my friend, the white guy got a cell phone. I'm going to be suspended maybe three times before he gets suspended once. Mm. Um, and so I think a lot of times parents don't necessarily understand that or know that about the data, right? We think, oh man, these kids just acting bad and all this other stuff. It's like, no, like they're they're actually experiencing more extreme punishment or harsher punishments for the same things. And what that means is because of how we do punishment in a in American schools is that the kid is being removed from learning, right? And so they're losing learning hours and so then their performance drops, like understandably. Um and so we really want parents to understand more about that, right? Like we hear a lot of parents talking about, well, I, I wish there was more African-American history. And a lot of times we kind of cast that off or like when you really get down to it, people don't like necessarily think that that's something that could solve the achievement gap, right? Like I don't think that that's really how we operate in this country, but really it could be, right? Because we don't, we, we maybe spend, you know, when you think about it, 28 days in February, there's like three weeks. So maybe the kids get 15 days at most every school year where they're really kind of focusing on themselves. And again, I told you how much culture is important to learning. And so we really want to give parents the tools that kind of help them see that, right? Like, no, like the, the classroom actually isn't culturally responsive. And so we've created a survey um, where, where students can actually respond to or comment on or rate the environment that they're in. So do they perceive low expectations from their their teachers do they notice that like um what what would they say about all of the kids that are in the ap courses or in the gifted courses in their school would they say that they look like them or would they say they look like somebody else and which kids are more likely to 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 respond in that way and so we're going to visualize that data and then work with parents through our trainings and workshops to be able to kind of advocate using that data, right? And so now they're going to the school board meetings or now they're going to, most schools have school improvement plans, right? Now they're going to those school improvement plan meetings and saying like, what I need you to change is I need you to change how frequently uh, the classrooms or the lessons in this school actually reflect the kids that are sitting in the classroom, right? So we, gonna, we, we spend all of these units to learn about, you know, Christopher Columbus, but kids don't know who Marcus Garvey is, right? Like, and we wonder, like, why they don't feel connected to the work or to, to what they're learning. Um, and so we're really pushing for parents to be able to kind of make those types of advocacy kind of claims and also, like, find their own understanding of that. Because inherently, a lot of parents understand this stuff, but a lot of times I think they feel like there isn't data that substantiated, and I think there is. And so we, we, we're trying to create that data um, and, and allow and, 
and support parents as they use that data to kind of advocate on their own behalf. Got you, man. That's that's it's definitely needed work because when we think about advocacy, just even from a political perspective or in general, the mm-hmm. word advocacy for some reason when I when it comes to my mind, it thinks of the ultra involved parent or the ultra involved mm-hmm. person on an ideal. Yeah. Those are really the only sometimes the only people to advocate. The only issue is that there's some pressing needs of this country right now that we need more yeah. people involved in the advocacy piece. <laughs> mm-hmm. But when you like, if it no use to come to the table if you don't know what you're cooking. It's like, okay, if yeah. you come to the yeah, table, yeah. so this is kind of will be able to break down because we mm-hmm. hear all the time we need more, we need more people at city city hall, we need more people at PTA, we need more people involved. But when you get there, if they don't really actively know what they can like, what what to suggest, what it looks like, what the data is to really put some yeah. value to it. Then there's no yeah. need for him to even be there, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's definitely difficult, you know what I mean, when folks don't know. And it's and it's and w- w- the other thing that it does is it makes people more likely to do that, right? Like when they see those numbers, when they understand what's going on and they know how to affect change, um, then then people are more likely to to impact it. And you see, like, I've seen at city council meetings, or I've seen at school board meetings, when a parent speaks and they talk about a situation, like how quick they are to try to assuage that parent or to try to, you know, mediate that situation. So they understand the power of the parents. Um, but it's, it's a thing where the parent has to kind of know, you know what I mean? Um, and, and a lot of that stuff is just like, I mean, you know, I've been studying this stuff for a long time now. Like it's, it's not like it's easy to access. Like I think the other thing is like people are like, Oh, well they should just do that. It's like, no, that's not, people spend a lot of time to figure this out and what and essentially what we're trying to do is remove the amount of time that parents have to do it and make it easier so that they can do it because folks ain't got a lot of time a lot of our parents don't have a lot of time hey man because i think sometimes due to the internet we see so much see all these graphs all this data I'm like oh you can just look it up but somebody got to create that data and there's no mm-hmm. data out there it's exactly. like who, who's creating these graphs who's creating yeah. these things who's getting and then who was doing the research to get that data yeah, so exactly. there's a lot of questions you ask, man. So uh, last question in the future before we get to our rapid fire round. Uh, when it's all said and done, how do you want to be remembered, man? You know, um, I think we talked about this before. Uh, I, I mean, I just want to be remembered as somebody who who cared about his people, you know, like mm-hmm. who put his people before himself um, and recognize that, that that in and of itself was loving himself, right? Like, if I take care of my people, then they will take care of me and they'll take care of my future generations, right? Like that that's to me, that's like how I invest in legacy is is to make sure that we're in a better place than when I was born. Um and you know, if if that's what I can be remembered as is like somebody who who cared and like tried to like above all like thought about like what does liberation for black folks look like and press towards that with like all of his energy and all of my um being then like that'll be love like that's that's enough for me no i no, i appreciate that's deep that's deep man so as we conclude man i got a, a rapid fire round man i got five rapid fire questions hopefully get rapid fire answers man if we get out here you ready man mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the best piece of advice that you have never received? <laughs> <laughs> That's your rapid fire question. <laughs> oh. It's never I, so yeah, never received. 
So that means mm-hmm. like you just come up on the fly with kind of what it's just. If you think yeah, about yeah, it, yeah. backtrack, you got it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the the this piece around there's a certain level of like egotism that I'm thinking about. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I, I think, um. The thing I was gonna say is like this mercy for black folks piece, like not not mercy, but like grace. Like I'm I'm gonna show other, I'm gonna show black people grace, right? Um, and, and that's not something we I think we hear enough. I don't know if I never received it, but we don't hear it enough. Is that we should give each other and extend each other more grace. Mm, I love that, and I, well, I will unpack that in, in another day, man. Uh, if you could, <laughs> if you could add one habit and take away one habit, what would they be? Um. If I could add one habit, it would be more reading. Um, and probably what I would take away is like the the mindless kind of social media, like searching. <laughs> so um, I saw like, you know, this quick help book. They were like, you know, instead of opening up Instagram, open up your Kindle app and read. And you'll be so you'll be surprised at how quickly you can get through a book. Mm, I like that. That makes sense. Uh, what is your what is the book or movie that has this that has had a profound impact on you and why invisible man um by ralph ellison uh it's one of the first books i read it in high school and so it was one of the first books that i think helped me kind of understand blackness and kind of like how we're positioned in this world especially in america um the first time and like really kind of dealt with some of the ideas of like respectability um, and who we are and how people see us. And like just remembering like who you are is actually more important than all of the rest of that stuff. Um, yeah. So the, yeah, there's, the, so there's a scene in the, in the, in the book where he's like questioning whether he should eat this like sweet potato yam on the street because of how people would look at him. And like, especially as a black person eating it on the street. And so like, so it it just did a lot for me and and a lot of like how I thought about respectability and what I needed to do and how I needed to show up and realize that it don't matter at the end of the day. Like, if you want to see me as like this ignorant black person, that's, that's what you'll do. Um, Mm. But I, I know, I know that's different for myself, right? Like I know who I am, right? And if I know who I am, then I'm going to enjoy this thing because <laughs> it, that doesn't define me. Like I'm going to eat watermelon. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 I'm not going to worry about how you think about me because you think that anyway, you know? Uh, so, yeah. Hmm. That's just very interesting. I like, I like that. I like that. Uh, what is your biggest fear? Um, I mean, I think my biggest fear is that I I will I will become like unhumble, <laughs> detached. You know, I go easy. Like, yeah. <laughs> like um, that's a you know like that's I would just hate it. You know what I mean? Like if that's like where I found myself out, or like you know that's I like one day I woke up and like that's who I was. Um, and so. Yeah, that yeah. would that's it. That's it. <laughs> if, if you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do? Whoo, first thing? I mean, right now I think you gotta let all the like low level drug defenders out. Like all yes. all of them gotta get out. Like they all just gotta get out. <laughs> all I mean, come on, man. They, like what? Like it's it's the weed is legal in all these and not all these states, but so many states, and we got cats serving mate big time. 
Big yeah, yeah. time. And then, like, it's, yeah, we've had this conversation on the show before. Like, I, I bumped in. I was at Harvard uh, last year. And a guy uh-huh. and a, um, a couple white males, they're starting up this uh, this weed startup. And there's so many mm-hmm. others that they're starting all these, and they're profiting, they're doing all this stuff. They're getting, they're getting rounds of funding to do more research yeah. on it to get all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. I'm like, bro, there's people yeah, in there yeah. for dime bags for like an ounce, and they in it for yeah. 10 years. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they all got it. Yeah, I mean that's first, first things first. But yeah, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of other things on that list. But <laughs> yeah, got yeah. man, oh man. So I wraps up that round. And as I always say, everybody on this show that comes on the show is a culture change agent. They're doing what they can to change the culture in their own standing. So the last question we have on the show is always the same. If you could change one thing about society, uh, most specifically in our, our African American culture, uh, what would it be mm. and why? I mean, I, I, you know, I'll just be repetitious on this, man. Like, I feel like we need to show each other a lot more grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hesitate to say that this is a part of our culture, but this is a part of like white supremacy that we've picked up and have internalized in our culture which is where we look down on each other, um, where we make statements like, you know, black folks don't want to invest in us or, you know, I can't trust a black business or you know, like, you know, insert negative idea about blackness um, and how we repeat that. Uh, I would change that because I think a lot of times we talk ourselves out of supporting each other. We talk ourselves out of doing things for each other or even committing to each other. Um, and it, it really separates us. Like um, one thing I think that people say, like a lot of times I, I've heard parents say is like, you know, well, I ain't going to let my my kids hang out with them ghetto kids. And it's just like, who are the ghetto kids? <laughs> like, you know, what I mean, like what what are we saying about each other? Like, and, and like, are those kids really that bad? Right. And what and if they are, then what are we actually doing to kind of make sure that they're, they're growing up in a situation where that's not how they're being shaped. Because it's not like a kid comes out of the womb like that, right? Like they're learning certain things. And the reason why our kids learn certain things like that is because of stuff like redlining. Like we didn't have some of these issues until people started building like highways through major <laughs> black parts of town, like 147 here in Durham or, you know, the, 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 the riots that they had in Kansas city or how they burnt down a whole community in Wilmington or how they bombed the black Panthers in Philadelphia. Like you don't have to say like, Oh, when you're driving by that, like those folks are hood and they lazy if we actually said, nah, like that's a red line community, like that just completely changes the conversation and who should be held accountable. And I think it helps us have better expectations of each other. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I, in some ways, I kind of feel like we all we got. Right. And so the more we're together, I think the more we'll be able to move forward. And I, and I think we're moving there. Right. Like, I think that there's a lot of things that are happening in our culture right now where folks are really kind of choosing to kind of reinvest in each other. And so I'm not saying that we don't do that. I'm just saying that I will remove all of it <laughs> um, so that we could do it all the time. Man, that's that's profound. And I think. That's one thing that, uh, as we wrap up this podcast, one thing that we can take away from the podcast, it was one nugget is just that awareness piece of the words that we speak on one another. Um, yeah, and, and, yeah. and try to put, really try to put our, 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 our feet in other people's shoes in the seat, man, because 
man, that's that's, that's profound. Like, oh, ghetto kids. Like, who are these ghetto kids? We say so much offhand stuff about our culture that it is ridiculous. If we think, like, hold up, man. Like, really? Like, and then at the time, like, we were one of them. If we say, and it's, we we were one of those kids. Like, we we grew up around them. Our parents were raised in those environments. Like, or our yeah, parents' yeah, yeah. parents were. So how are we yeah. so far removed in twenty years <laughs> now that we like yeah. you can't hang around with someone? It's just. And, and it makes us think. So, like I said, I appreciate you for giving us a lot of your time, man, sharing us with Village of Wisdom, your thoughts on a lot of different things, and really just opening, truly, truly, truly opening up our perspective on questions that we can't ask of others, but most importantly, questions that we can ask among ourselves, man. So, like I said, I'm, I'm humbled and I'm grateful for you giving us the time and appearing on the show, man. Thank you a lot, Greg. I really appreciate it, man. I had a, had a good time. So thanks for having me on, man. No doubt. So as we close, as we close, man, if, and also too, for holding the phone to your ear this whole time, man. Hey, audience, this guy has held this phone up for two hours. Like, no lie. No, no headphones, no speaker phones. That's a task in itself. Um, but where can we, where can we find more information about Village of Wisdom and, yeah. and how can our audience members support your cause? Yeah, man. So we uh, just got a new website up. Uh, been working on it. Wix, y'all. Wix will save your <laughs> life. <laughs> just telling you right now. Uh, so villageofwisdom.org. Villageofwisdom.org. Uh, you can see our site. Um, and also blackgenius.com. Uh, and so when you think about ways to support us, and we're also on uh, social media. So all of our social media is under Village of Wisdom. Uh, so the Instagram page is under Village of Wisdom. Facebook is under Village of Wisdom. And Twitter is under me, Village of Wisdom. We're most active on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and ways to support. So we have Black Genius gear. Don't get it from nowhere else. We got a trademark. Y'all got a trademark? <laughs> um, Genius. We got a trademark. Uh, BlackGenius.com. Go get you some Black Genius gear. You can actually sign up to be a supporter, a monthly supporter of like 10 20 or $40 for $10 a month. You get one item a year. For $20 a month, you get two items a year. And for $40 a month, you get five items a year. So uh, we would definitely love folks to support us in that way. And if you're here local in Durham and you want to try to help us out, um, we're always you know, looking for volunteers and we have different events that folks can kind of support us at. Oh, man. Well, shoot. Like I said, everybody, the, the links and everything... Everything that we discussed will be in the show notes, man. So from the bottom of my heart, from the bottom of everybody's hearts, thank you again, man. And Minority Trouble in the Nation, I need to do two things and two things only. First, make sure you leave a review, comment, share with a friend, all that good stuff. And two, make sure you are changing the freaking culture. Good night. <laughs> Boom.